if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them once again to Romans chapter 12. We're in this section within a section in verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12 of Romans that we've been walking through. The heading for this section in my Bible says, Marks of the True Christian. We noted that there are 30 marks here, 30 exhortations is the word that we've been using. Um, Some refer to this passage of Scripture as a sort of New Testament law, that these are commands that we must follow. And certainly some of these words here can be interpreted as commands, but not so much commands. They're describing the kind of life, the kind of transformed life that believers in Christ are to be living. Those who are being transformed into the image of Jesus, these exhortations describe those who are being so transformed. And so we don't, we don't, pass, we don't approach a passage of Scripture like this with a hope that we will make ourselves acceptable to God by trying to conform ourselves to the transformations that are described herein. We could never do that. Please don't. If, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new here at New Branch, if you're just kind of poking your head in, please don't hear this morning that, that by following uh, the prescriptions that Paul gives for us here that we can somehow make ourselves acceptable to God. He's very clear in the first half of this letter that that's only made possible by faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute. Where by faith in Jesus Christ we are forgiven of our sins. He pays for our sins on the cross and we are given his righteousness. The righteousness that he achieved through his right living becomes ours so that when God looks at us, he sees us as right and acceptable, not because of our own attempts at being acceptable, because of Jesus being acceptable on our behalf. So we don't look at a passage of Scripture in those terms. Instead, we look at a passage of Scripture, we approach this kind of passage of Scripture with a heart's desire to see God glorified through us. Through our ongoing change, our ongoing transformation into the kind of person that more and more with each passing day, with each passing year, we look more like Jesus. We're conformed into his image. We begin to mirror the life of Christ. And these 30 marks, these 30 exhortations in verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12 describe the life transformations that are going on in the life of one who, is, who has been recreated by the grace of God and one who is continuing to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God. We've covered 13 of the 30 exhortations in verses 9 through 13. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16, which include eight additional exhortations. So follow along with, we, with me as we read verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. And the word of God says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the word of God. Let us pray. 
Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privilege it has been this morning as your people to gather in this room with one another to exalt the name of Jesus, to declare our conviction that you are sovereign and you are good and that you have made a way of rescue by sending your one and only son to live a perfect life that we could never live and to die in our place on a cross. Lord, we, we ask now that you'd speak to us from your word, that even as we unpack these exhortations, these marks of a true believer, God, that in, in seeking to un, unpack them and seeking to have a, a better knowledge of what these exhortations mean, even as we do that, we lay ourselves before you and we we appeal to you, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would begin to affect these changes in our life. We ask, God, that you would make us a people who are more glorifying to you, who worship you better, who praise you better with our very lives because you are changing us in these ways. You are conforming us to the image of your son, Jesus in these very ways. So we ask that you do that this morning. Even as we speak, even as we look at these passages of Scripture, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would change us. Make us look more like Jesus so that you might be glorified. And pray that in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin to unpack verses 14 through 16, I want to recall to our mind the the form that we've been using, the analogy that John MacArthur uses in this passage of Scripture for helping to understand verses 9 through 21, he, he likens it to an ever-increasing circle that begins in verse 9 with just us and some very personal exhortations to us. And then in verse 10 through 13 that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, that circle widens to include those within the body of Christ, those who are believers in Jesus, who are in the body of Christ, who are in the church, and how we are to be transformed in how we love them. And now, in verse 14 through 16, the circle widens once again to include not just those who are inside the church, but those who also are outside the church. And then next week, when we cover verses 17 through 21, the circle will widen a final time to include those who are, who are even what we might call our enemies, those who would seek to harm us and do violence to us. So the passage that we're looking at this morning is primarily speaking about including those who are outside the church and how we ought to be transformed and how we love them, how, how our love is to be genuine towards those outside the church. So he's talking about Loving those who are unbelievers, those who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ and how we are to love them. So he starts off there in verse 14 by saying, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. So there's two exhortations there, but we can't separate them. Obviously, they go hand in hand. And so I'm combining them into, into one exhortation. So these eight exhortations, I'm going to categorize into four. And the first of those four is quite literally from verse 14. Bless those who persecute you and don't curse them. Bless them. Now, the audience to whom we are to bless and not curse are those 
who persecute us. Those who persecute us. Last week, we noted that this word persecute is a very interesting word in the Greek. That by itself, devoid of any context, doesn't denote really any kind, anything good or bad, anything positive or negative. In fact, the very same word is found in the preceding verse that we looked at last week in verse 13, and there it is translated as seeking to, in the phrase seeking to show hospitality. So clearly, there is a very big difference, obviously, between showing hospitality to someone and persecuting someone. In fact, they could be called opposites of one another. So the word itself in the Greek means to flee to or to harass or to pursue. Now, last week, I mentioned that uh, in, in the sermon that we looked at last week from verse 13, I mentioned that this word comes from two Greek words, one that means to flee to and the other that means to minister or to, to serve. But actually, when I went back and did more study on that word this week, I noted that I was a little loose with the Greek. And actually, it doesn't come from the word to serve or to minister, but that Greek word, diakonos, which means to serve or to minister, shares the same root with this word that in verse 13 is translated seek, and in verse 14 that is translated as persecute. So the word itself means to flee to, or to harass, or to pursue. In some instances, it's translated as pursue. Like when Paul used it back in Romans chapter 9, he used it this way. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did, who did not pursue righteousness, that word pursue is the same word that in verse 13 is translated seek, and in verse 14 is translated as persecute. Those Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have, have obtained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. So, so the word means to pursue and so we could say that we are to pursue one another in showing hospitality. That's how it's used in verse 13. But obviously there is another kind of pursuing that's not positive, that is in fact very negative, and that's when it's translated as persecute. So whether it's a good kind of pursuing or a bad kind of pursuing depends on the context. The context of verse 13 is obviously a good kind of pursuing. It's talking about showing hospitality to one another, so that's a good pursuit. But the kind of pursuit that is mentioned in verse 14 is clearly a negative kind of pursuit. After all, if verse 14 was about a good kind of pursuit, people pursuing us in a good way, then Paul would have no reason to exhort us not to curse them. We're not tempted to curse people who are pursuing us in a good way, but we are sometimes tempted to curse people who are pursuing us in a bad sort of way to seek to do us harm. And so translators in those situations in the English Bible have chosen to translate this phrase, this word, as persecute in those situations. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about persecution. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Clearly, in the context of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is not talking about people who are our friends who are trying to pursue us with some kind of gracious spirit of hospitality. He's talking instead about people who are uh, trying to harass us and bother us and do us harm and saying mean things to us. And so, for that reason, the English word persecute is used in those situations. And oddly enough, that Greek understanding of the word persecute in the Greek really meshes well with the strict definition, dictionary definition, of our word persecute. The first definition that I found of this word persecute in the English language is to pursue with harassing or oppressive treatment for a variety of reasons, especially because of religious or political beliefs, ethnic or racial origin, gender identity, sexual orientation, and the like. The second definition for this word persecute is to annoy or trouble persistently. Now, I suppose that you could do that sort of thing in a positive way. In a sense, you could uh, pursue someone um, to show hospitality, even in a persistent sense, that you would uh, bother someone enough to where they finally accept your display of hospitality as a display of genuine love on their part. I think that's a stretch probably for that word. More naturally, the English word persecute has a very negative connotation with respect to pursuit. It means pursuing someone to harass them, to trouble them persistently in a negative sense. And that's what's meant by the biblical understanding of persecution. And persecution against Christ followers was in ample supply in Paul's day as it is in our day today as well. Just this week, a group called Open Doors USA put out their World Watch List, which they put out every year. It's their annual report of the top 50 nations in the world with respect to Christian persecution. And Open Doors defines persecution as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. Any, any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. And according to their research, this is mind-blowing, every day, one in nine Christians in the world will face what they call high levels of persecution. One in nine believers in the world. That's 200, about 245 million people, depending on how you define the word Christian. According to actual reports of Christian persecution that Open Doors receives every month, every month, 255 Christians are killed for their faith in Jesus. 104 are abducted because of their faith in Jesus. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage. 66 churches are attacked. They're burned or vandalized in some way. And 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned every single month. Now, here in the U.S., we don't experience anything close to what is described by Open Doors USA and other parts of the world and some of these countries that are on the world watch list. We don't experience anything close to it. And so it almost seems demeaning to use the same word to describe what Christians face in this world. And yet, if we use that strict definition, hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus, then certainly 
believers do face persecution even in our own country. And more and more so, it seems, with each passing year. Whether it's a glass ceiling in your career because you're not willing to compromise your faith, or whether it's censorship on a college campus because you refuse to bow at the altar of evolution, or whether it's being prosecuted as having committed a hate crime because you had the audacity to exercise your religious liberty and it ended up offending someone, persecution against Christians in the United States is becoming normalized and it's growing and only the Lord knows how far he will allow that to continue, to intensify. But Paul says we should bless those who persecute us. We should bless them and not curse them. Now when scripture speaks of blessing, usually it's referring to God blessing his people. That he shows favor to his people and he blesses his people in some way with wisdom or favor or whatever. But scripture also talks about how we can bless God. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So we can bless God with our worship and our praise. But when scripture talks about how mankind can bless others, it's specifically referring to us appealing to God that he might invoke his blessing on people on our behalf. He's talking about us praying to God and asking that God would bless people. And that's what Paul means to say here in verse 14. We also know that this is the case because the cursing that we are to not do, that Paul sets up here as kind of the opposite of blessing, is also appealing to God in some way. So the cursing that he's talking about here is not using curse words against someone who who uh, persecutes us, but instead praying to God. In that case, cursing would be praying to God and appealing to God that God might curse them in our place. So Paul is telling us here that we are to pray to God on behalf of those who persecute us and that God would bless them. Now, doesn't that seem backwards? Well, it does seem backwards to our sin nature, to our flesh. Our sin nature wants to retaliate. Our sin nature wants to exact its pound of flesh. And so it's natural for us to want to do the opposite. It's natural for us to want to curse them. And that's what our culture espouses as well. So the idea of praying to God to bless those who would persecute us is both very countercultural and counterintuitive and backwards even to our own flesh. But it's not backwards according to Jesus. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus specifically commanded his disciples to do in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, what do you think he intended that we might pray for those who persecute us? Not imprecatory prayers. Lord, I pray that you would smite them. That would be cursing them. No, he, he intends for us to pray for them that he would, in fact, show favor to them, that he would bless them, which is what Paul is exhorting us to do here as well. And by the way, Paul practiced what he preached. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, we are fools for Christ's sake. You, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we, speaking of himself and the other apostles and those who are traveling with him, we are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, which is another word for pray. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says when people mistreat you, you are to bless them by praying to God that God might bless them. And by the way, it's to be an unadulterated blessing because it's to be without any mixture of cursing, without any mixture of ill thought or ill treatment. So this is blessing without retaliation, without bitterness, without resentment. Now, how hard is that? How hard is that? This is why our only hope for living this kind of countercultural, counterintuitive, sin opposing life is if the Holy Spirit enables us and if the Lord conforms us to the image of Christ. Perhaps, and this is just conjecture on my part, perhaps. We have only been afforded the level of persecution that we have been afforded in the United States because the church in America has handled what little persecution we have so poorly. We bow up and we stand for our religious liberty. And believe me, listen, don't get me wrong, there's a place for that in a political sphere. But in our one-on-one conversations with one another, it's not about bowing up to one another and retaliating. It's about, that, that, that has no bearing on what Jesus said. Our response to that needs to be to pray to God that God might bless them. How counterintuitive is that? How difficult is that? We can only do that if Christ changes us. We can only do that through the Spirit who enables us. This is, this is why Paul said and when, when he knew that he was tasked to do something very difficult, he said this in Colossians 1, 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Look at that. For this I toil. What was the this that he was toiling for? He was talking there in Colossians 1 about, about his calling to preach the gospel so that they might be sanctified, so that they who were experiencing this persecution, who were trying to live out this life in the New Testament, in the first century world, in Palestine, that they would grow in a practical way in their holiness. And Paul says, I'm giving my life to this. For this I toil. And that word toil speaks to effort and energy and and, and something that he's working on. But how is it that he toils? Struggling with all his energy, which he powerfully works within me. So how does Paul do this hard thing that's been asked of him? Only through Christ who lives in, like the song we just sang. Through his power, his energy, which he powerfully works within me. And so we toiled, church, struggling and striving to, to do this sort of thing, to bless those who persecute us. 
and not to curse them, not to retaliate, not to to resent them, but to pray to God that God might show them favor. We toil for that. We strive for that. How? Struggling with his energy, which he powerfully works in us. We can't do this apart from him. And the more and more God allows persecution for the church in America, we cannot rely on our reservoirs of strength. We must rely on his. And how much more in parts of the world that are enduring that kind of persecution, they are relying on the spirit of God who is in them to give them strength that he powerfully works within them. Second exhortation is found in verse 15. Second exhortation is to display genuine empathy for others. Display genuine empathy for others. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, use the word empathy here because that's what Paul is describing. He's describing an empathetic kind of outlook on one another's. That we rejoice with others in such a way as if what is causing them to rejoice is happening to us as well. And we weep with others in such a way as if what is causing them to weep is also happening to us. I mentioned the phrase, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I mentioned that phrase last week. We were talking about Paul's exhortation to pursue showing hospitality to one another. But hospitality has to do with me opening my house and opening my wallet and opening my life to others so that I might change them from strangers into friends. While the kind of empathy that Paul is describing here in verse 15 is about connecting with one another emotionally and and being so for one another that we feel what they feel as if it were happening to us, that, that their joy becomes our joy and their grief becomes our grief. Now, with whom are we to be empathetic? He, he tells us here, it could be, any, it could be everyone. Um, the, the section that we're, that we're in here, we've broadly described this next widening of the circle as including those who are outside the church. But with this concept of an ever-widening circle, as it widens to include others, it doesn't do so by kicking out the ones who are already on the inside. So, The circle started in verse 9 with just us, but when it widened in verse 10 to include believers in the church, it didn't do so by kicking us out of the circle. And in verse 14 here, when the circle widens to include those outside the church, it doesn't do so by kicking those within the church outside of that circle as well. It, It continues to include those who are in. And so, with whom must we rejoice and weep? Those inside the church? Believers? Yes. Those outside the church, unbelievers, yes. Paul doesn't qualify with whom we should rejoice and weep other than to say that it is those who rejoice and those who weep, both inside and outside the church. Now, because of the hardness of our heart and because of the depravity of man, what comes natural to us is just the opposite. What is natural to our sin nature, what is natural to our flesh, because at our core we are a selfish people, is to weep when others rejoice and to rejoice when others weep. That's our bent. 
When something good happens to someone else, there is a part of our self-centered nature that says, that's not fair, what about me? And when something bad happens to someone else, there is a self-absorbed part of our nature that says, I'm glad that wasn't me. Paul described our depravity this way when writing to his friend Titus in Titus 3, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days, listen to this, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And it's not just our sin nature that bends us in this way. It is the world around us as well. It is culture itself that shapes us in this way. Our our culture doesn't fundamentally value finding joy in the success of others, nor does it value grieving when others fail. Our culture values above all else elevating self, even at the expense of others. So culture apart from Christ nurtures these sorts of things that Paul mentions, malice and envy and hatred. And certainly we see a myriad of examples of those in the world, malice and envy and hatred. It's all over the place. But Jesus said that the second greatest commandment, second only to the first commandment, commandment, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the second commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to be quite honest, that's the, that's the umbrella under which all of these exhortations in verses 9 through 12, 21 exist. So which direction will we go? Will we, will we be conformed to, the, to that pattern of this world that elevates self above, above all else, which is conforming us to, to an image that is consistent with what our sin nature desires, which is to elevate self? Or... Will we be transformed by the renewing of our mind to love our neighbor as ourself and to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? To what degree do we need to lay ourselves before the Lord in this area and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work on our heart, to transform us more into the image of Christ, to bend us away from what the world values and bend us back to what Jesus values. When the other guy in the office gets the promotion instead of us, do we rejoice for them or do we weep because it wasn't us? When our friend gets accepted to the college of her choice and we don't, do we rejoice for her? Now let me mention a couple of caveats so we're clear in what we're not saying. First of all, we're not talking here about rejoicing in evil. If that other dude in the office gets the promotion because he was unethical and he was cheating his way to the top, clearly and obviously Paul is not commending that we find joy in the fact that he was rewarded for that. But if he works hard and he works fairly and he's rewarded fairly with a promotion instead of us, then we ought to rejoice in their rejoicing. So it's not talking about rejoicing in evil, but the second caveat is that he's not talking here about faking it. He's not talking about faking empathy. He's talking about genuine empathy. Listen, if something good happens to our friend, something good happens to our friend, while at the same time something bad is happening to us, 
sharing in their joy doesn't preclude grieving over our loss. We can do the same at the same time. My grieving over sadness in my life and my rejoicing over something good that is happening in your life are not mutually exclusive reactions. And at the same time, my weeping with you over your sadness and my rejoicing over something good that is happening in my life that God has brought into my life are also not mutually exclusive. If my loved one dies on the same day that my friend's first child is born, then I will be weeping and rejoicing at the same time, right? And in the same way, if the other guy in the office gets the promotion and I don't, I can be happy with, for them, genuinely, while at the same, do, same time being pretty bummed out that it wasn't me. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, before we move on to verse 16, I want to ask a question that we need to ponder for a bit. And that is, why would Paul include this exhortation in his list of marks of a true believer? Why, why does this exhortation make the cut? Well, what, what difference does it make in the kingdom if we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? What difference does it make in the kingdom? Well, I think we can all admit that it makes a huge difference to us personally when someone weeps when we weep and when someone rejoices when we rejoice. When that happens, we feel like this person is sharing life with us. It, ma it makes us feel like that what is happening to us is by way of extension, it's happening to them as well, that, that they're sharing in my joy or they're sharing in my grief and my sadness. And quite honestly, it's a, it's a way of displaying love. It's a way of displaying the kind of genuine love that Paul exhorted us to in verse 9, which again is the umbrella over this whole section of Scripture. That we're to have genuine love towards one another, and this is a display of that. And the more loving we become, here it is, the more loving we become, the more we embody the, 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 the law of Christ, which is to love God and love others. And the more we embody the law of Christ, the more we are conformed to the image of Christ. And the more we are conformed to the image of Christ, the more we will glorify God with our lives. And so church, when we rejoice with those who rejoice, when we weep with those who weep, we are bringing glory to God because it means that we've been transformed, no longer conformed to the image of the world. We've been transformed to look more like Jesus and God is greatly glorified in that. So it's a huge kingdom impact. Third and fourth exhortations both come from verse 16. The third exhortation is to exhibit harmony. Verse 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So there's, goodness, four different exhortations in this one verse, and we're going to divide it into two. And the first is to exhibit harmony. He says, live in harmony. He uses that word harmony there in verse 16. The, the translators in the ESV are trying to translate a phrase that in the English, that, that, that in the Greek has no English equivalent. 
The, the, the phrase in the Greek, if we were to translate it word for word, mean, says this, the same toward one another minding. The same toward one another. doesn't make any sense in the English, does it? The same toward one another minding. It's a participle phrase. It's describing how we're to be towards one another. And Paul says the way we're to be towards one another is the same toward one another minding. What in the world does that mean? It means the way that we think about one another, the way we are mindful of one another or toward one another ought to be the same. That phrase, toward one another minding, is translated here in verse 16 as live in harmony in the ESV. But back in chapter 8, it was translated as setting your mind on something. Whether you set your mind on the flesh or you set your mind on the things that are above. And then in, in two more chapters, in chapter 14, that very same phrase will be translated there, observing. As, as in observing one day over another. So there are three components to this phrase. The first is it has to do with our mind. It has to, has to do with what we do with our mind, which, think, which is thinking. Secondly, it's a directional thinking. And the direction of our thinking is toward one another. And then thirdly, our thinking toward one another is to be the same. I actually like the way the New American Standard translates this phrase in verse 16. It says, have the same mind toward one another. Some, some con- commentators think that what Paul is referring to here is unity. That, that, that we're to have the kind of mind that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that we're to be of one mind. That we're to be of one mind toward one another. There's to be unity in how we think about one another. Other commentators say that what Paul is after here is, is kind of getting along with one another, which is probably what the ESV and NIV translators were thinking when they translate this as live in harmony with one another. And so we're to be a people who are characterized by being amicable rather than being uncivil or disagreeable. But still other commentators say that what Paul is exhorting believers to here is to be impartial. That we treat one another both inside the church and outside the church the same. Regardless of differences. Regardless of differences in skin color or economic status or gender or whatever. That we are to be impartial and unbiased in our dealings with others. And I think any of those would work. And possibly, as, some, as many commentators note about this particular verse, perhaps Paul leaves this a bit ambiguous because he intends for all of them to be true. Certainly, we're to exhibit unity in how we think toward one another. Our thinking toward one another ought to go through a filter of unity. Does this promote unity or does this promote division? Our thinking toward one another and about one another ought to go through that filter. Perspective toward others, inside and outside the church, ought to display that we are an amicable people, not given to things like meanness or rudeness or incivility or what Paul calls elsewhere quarrelsome. And I'll be honest with you, in an age where we are so divided as a culture, that we have lost the art of civil discourse, 
That, that we have lost the ability to respectfully disagree with one another without vilifying the other person with whom we disagree. In this state of our culture, this idea of being amicable towards one another, in harmony with one another, and not quarrelsome in our thinking, certainly would be an example of us not being conformed to the pattern of the world. That we're to be transformed, that we're to be different than the world around us. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But also as believers in Jesus, certainly we're to think toward one another in such a genuinely loving way that we are impartial, blind, if you will, to the differences between us. And so we must ask the Lord to so transform us into the image of Christ that we would be displaying unity and harmony and impartiality in how we think toward one another. And then the final exhortation also from verse 16 is to grow in humility. Second half of verse 16 says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. To be haughty is to be high-minded, to think highly of yourself, which reminds us of verse 3 of chapter 12 when Paul exhorted us, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is also the idea behind the last phrase of verse 16 when he says, don't be wise in your own sight. I like the, the way the NIV translates that. NIV says, don't be conceited. To be high-minded is to set yourself above others in whatever criteria you choose. To set yourself above others in your outward appearance or your economic status or your level of intelligence, whatever criteria you choose, to set yourself above others. And clearly this is not indicative of one who has been transformed into the image of Jesus because it is Jesus himself who said of himself, I am meek and lowly of heart, which means humble. I am meek and lowly of heart. If we're being transformed into his image, then we're not going to be high-minded and haughty. So Paul exhorts us against this, but then he offers a picture in that second phrase of one who is humble. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That word associate is pretty cool. It literally means to be carried away with or to, to lead away with. And so the idea is that we ought to be carried away with the lowly. That the, only, the, the, that the lowly ought to consume our efforts and preoccupy our minds. And commentators are divided on whether the lowly are referring to lowly things or lowly people. If it's referring to lowly things, then what he's exhorting us to in verse 16 is to give ourselves to menial jobs, to menial tasks where nobody will notice us, tasks that will gain us no popularity and no prestige, just serving the Lord behind the scenes in unnoticed ways. But if, on the other hand, he's talking about associating with lowly people, then this is an exhortation to serve the poor and the marginalized and the forgotten, those who will not be able to pay us back or reward us in any way. And again, I think this is another instance of Paul intentionally being ambiguous because he means both. 
Paul doesn't qualify who or what the lowly are, just that they are lowly, befitting the attention of those who are being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ, who himself is meek and lowly of heart. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to us this morning and tells us, bless those who persecute you. Pray to the Lord that he might bless them, that he might find favor with them, and don't curse them. Display genuine empathy by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Exhibit harmony and unity of mind toward others, impartiality in how they're treated. And grow in humility, being carried away by the thoughts of humble service. Church, may the Lord put us in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And may he mold us like clay in the potter's hands in these ways. So that God might be glorified in us and through us. Let's pray.